Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-y-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on why-make.com. Welcome to episode 53 of Why Make. On this episode, we talk with Robert Lyon, a woodturner, artist, and educator who lives and works in the Columbia, South Carolina area. Literally climbing the walls with handmade ladders as a small child, the sky was the limit, as Robert explored model rockets and building theater sets before landing an art school for college. His lifetime in the arts started in ceramics when he discovered he could spend the whole day at the wheel and not notice the passage of time. No matter what he did, Robert always wanted every day to have that feel. We talk with Robert about being an assistant professor at Louisiana State University, where he helped to set up one of the most vibrant ceramics programs in the United States at the time, before discovering the wood lathe. After spending five years as an administrator, Robert returned to teaching full-time in the art department at the University of South Carolina until retiring in 2017. Since then, Robert has continued to teach and explore the lathe and lathe-turned forms. Join us as Robert Lyon takes us back and forth across the Rio Grande, flowing through his mind's eye into those places where he finds inspiration. And we'd like to thank Robert Lyon for joining us for the Why Make podcast. Welcome to Why Make, Robert. Well, thank you. I'm, it's a pleasure being here. And as we always like to start, we will start with the Why Make question, which, Robert, what is your first memory of making something? Oh, boy. My first, my really first uh, memory was as a little kid. I, I don't remember how old I was. But I would go down to the basement where my dad had a little bench that he had built just to keep some tools on and whatnot. And I would make little ladders that I would climb the basement walls with. And it would be literally that, just uh, kind of two by fours nailed together and just kind of walk up these things up the wall. And, you know, eventually that started leading into... Other things, I used to make carbon arc lamps. I don't know if you remember uh, those, but I used to take apart D-cell batteries and pull out the carbon rods and run a wire through a saltwater bath and plug these things in and bring them together and, you know, make a carbon arc. Um, and But then I did other kinds of little things. Um, I remember making a little sculpture of my mother in plaster and hooking rugs and that sort of thing. But as time went on, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. You were a nerdy little kid. I guess so. My dad was a chemist, and so... What did your mom do? My mom was a homemaker. So I had uh, two sisters and a brother. And so there were four of us as kids. And I was the oldest. Um, so I was 
a lot of times, you know, just doing things by myself. But, you know, it wasn't until high school that I started getting into uh, flying model rockets, building, building rockets and shooting them up. I did that, too. That's great. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, maybe I should enter this, do something for the science fair. And this was sophomore year of high school. And I built these rockets and I built a maze, a big maze, four by four foot plywood maze that I trained white mice to run the maze and would time them how long it took to get to the middle to their food, right? And so then I built a centrifuge. I have an old vacuum motor. And so I would spin them around, drop them into the maze, see how long it took for them to negotiate the maze. And then I would take them out to a local field, set up my maze and launch them up in these model rockets, drop them down and see how long it took for them to run. Well, it turns out that this whole project uh, won me to the New Jersey State Science Fair that year, which I guess was 60, 1968. And not only that, but I won a, an award from the Army Aviation Association from NASA, which included a trip to the Goddard Space Flight Center, which was awesome, by the way. Wow. And a trip to uh, the National Youth Conference on the Atom which was being held wow. in Chicago that year, and, which the, and one of the most memorable, memorable parts of that trip was meeting Muhammad Ali in the airport in Chicago. And Oh, wow. I will have to say you probably won no awards from the Humane Society. <laughs> we, we've owned several cats, but no. <laughs> so um, that sort of led me into thinking, Oh, you know, I guess I'm going to go into science somehow. And, you know, the next couple of years go by. No, my, my dad says, well, you're going to apply for college. And it's like, well, yeah, sure. But I never did. And I never did. And I never did. And it came time for a late registration at the local community college or go out and find a job. And so I said, well, I'll go. And, but senior year in high school. Uh, we put on this, the school put on a big school play every year. Costumes from Brooks Van Horn in New York. They hired an orchestra to come in and play. And I was a stage manager for this play and I loved it. I loved building all this stuff. So I walked into late registration and said, I'd like to uh, study stage design. They said, well, we don't have that, but you'll need to take art classes. And so, uh, I said, okay. And they said, they can transfer. So I said, what do I take? And they signed me up for some things. And then I never looked back. I graduated the, from community college, went to the College of New Jersey. And um, from there, and that's where my first real um, experiences with craft came in, uh, taking ceramics, metals, and as well as sculpture. And... Um, so after, after a couple of years there, I knew at this point, oh, and so, you know, one really interesting thing happened when I would go to the ceramic studio, I could, you know, get there in the morning, 8.30 or something, look up at the clock in the studio. And the next thing I know, I look up at the clock and it's five o'clock. 
And I said, no matter what I do in my life, it's got to feel like that. And, you know, I don't want, to, you know, checking, you know, time for break, time for lunch, time to go home, you know. I just want it to feel like a flow somehow. And so uh, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school and uh, pursue this more. I uh, ended up going to the Tyler School of Art, and uh, it was a great decision, I mean, for me anyway. Um, I just kept moving on. So I'm assuming at Tyler, the ceramics program was based around sculpture and not functional objects? Um, you know, both Rudy and Bob made pot-oriented work. So I wouldn't say it was really focused that way towards sculptural objects, but that's what I made when I was there. Even, you know, my first semester, uh, everybody's accepted it provisionally. And so you have to uh, go through a first, you know, after a first semester, a review of what you've made. And so um, I had, I was making all this modular stuff that was going to be assembled on the floor and these big tile pieces. and. So they were all stacked up like a library in my little studio area. And I remember Bob Whitaker coming in one time and he said, um, he didn't really understand how this was all going to fit together and go together. And he said, um, he said, well, not everybody passes their review the first time. And I, yeah, I'm sure they don't. So I said, why are you telling me this? And he said, I just say you're not surprised. And, um, but it, as it turns out, um, I had no no problem passing my first semester review and uh, went on and graduated in time. Right. And did you experiment with other mediums while you were in school or you were just mainly ceramics? Uh, yes. No, well, it was I was primarily working clay, but then I was taking glass. And uh, so learning to blow glass and cast glass. Uh, John Clark was the guy who was teaching glass at the time. And... Italo Skanga was one of the sculpture faculty. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. It was on the West Coast now, I think. Um, but Italo uh, would bring uh, Dale Trahuli down from RISD, along with Jamie Carpenter. And so we would get to know these guys a little bit. So it was an interesting time. And it was that glass experience that uh, at Tyler that allowed me to um, build a glass studio at LSU when I went there in 1978 as an assistant professor. And so, you know, I uh, taught ceramics for about eight years, I think, um, full-time there. And we went um, from basically not a, a, a extremely well-known program, but in about eight years, we were ranked, um, I think it was, it was number two in U.S. News and World Report in uh, of ceramic programs in the country, uh, just behind Alfred, so it, we we did a lot of uh, a lot of things and and it, and again, what was the focus of what you were teaching? We were both you were teaching both functional ceramics as well as as sculpture. Yes, and... I would teach both wheel throwing mm -hmm. and you know hand building as well as um, as well as sculptural things. And when I was there, Joe would take me and his son, Emil, out. We did a couple camping trips out in West Texas, uh, down that, uh, into the Davis Mountains and Big Bend National Park. 
But what I would really see on these trips were dried riverbeds and the clay content, you know, of these riverbeds left this great crackle pattern in the, in the riverbed. And uh, so I'd come back and I started thinking about how can I duplicate this in some things that I wanted to make. So I started building wire forms, um, welded wire. Uh, I built several uh, three-foot square wire forms. And then I would uh, mix terracotta clay and I would apply it to this wire mesh and until it was completely covered, all sides, all six sides and made them just big enough to fit into one of our largest kills and fire these things. And they would come out like flexible. You know, they would kind of shake. Oh, weird. Because the clay would crack, the wire would become annealed from the temperature of the firing. And so this thing would just kind of, you know, it would be kind of wobbly. <laughs> That's so weird. That's right. It would kind of, it would kind of shake. And so, um, I would, I made a lot of different things using this technique and had a couple of shows actually. Um, but transporting these things was a real bugger. It was very difficult, you know, not to break them. So I started thinking about, you know, how can I make a more permanent sort of thing? So I don't, I don't remember exactly what led me to this, but I thought maybe what I could do is mix a thick slurry, a, a thick clay slurry and add glue to it and mix it up and apply it to wooden forms, you know, like plywood forms or something. So I started to do that and I would mix this clay and glue mixture and then paint. And this is just Elmer's glue white Elmer's glue by, you know, in cases of gallon jugs and just, you know, dump it in and mix it up and then start pushing it on to these wooden forms that I would take a paintbrush and paint the glue onto the surface, push it onto the surface and it would uh, hold and it would crack because the understructure wasn't moving. The clay, as it dried, would slide, I think, across the surface of the still slightly wet glue beneath of it, and it would pull itself apart. And this led to a lot of earlier work um, where, you know, I started painting the undersurfaces, and so the clay would crack, expose these under colors underneath. Um, I was studying these things in nails on one-inch grid patterns. So I was pushing this clay all around between the nails, Wow. sticking out and even then so i would paint the nail heads um contrasting colors to the clay colors and um so i would have these fields of color almost sort of vibrating against one another so it led me to all kinds of things and so this is the first year or two i was there and at lsu and on the sideline i was invited to show in the glass show down in new orleans at this time, but we didn't have a glass facility yet. And so I thought, well, how can I make something that is glass-like, but not glass? And uh, so I decided to try to make some forms out of scotch tape. And so we had on campus this thing called plant stores, which was a basically a store 
that supplied office supplies to all the offices on campus and all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty close to our building. So I'd walk over there and they sold scotch tape in cases, you know, cases of scotch tape. And I walk in first time, bought a case. And so what I did is I built um, a hardware cloth frame. These were these I made cylinders, four cylinders that were two feet tall. And so they were about um, 12, 14 inches in diameter, about two feet tall. Wow. And and I had this wire mesh, uh, just metal screening, window screening. And I would wind the scotch tape sticky side down on the screen and wind it and wind it and wind it and keep building it up until I got um, enough thickness to start holding its own shape. So, you know, I go through a case of tape, go over to the plant stores, buy another case of tape, go over to the plant stores, buy two more cases of tape. <laughs> they probably thought you were crazy. <laughs> go over to the plant stores. And finally, you know, this guy is like, he sees me come in, you know, like the fifth time over the last 10 days. And he goes, man, he said, what are you taping? <laughs> I said, you, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. So anyway, I built these cylinders out of scotch tape, and they really looked like spun glass. You know, I mean, they really had this character. I'd made a, a base of scotch tape for them and uh, taped it all together. And then the the um, window screening, I could just fold in and pull out. So it was... Um, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> these scotch tape cylinders then were standing by themselves. And I called this, this piece uh, surrogate information. You know, it looks like glass, but it's not glass. And um, I had no idea that we would be talking to you about scotch tape. This is wild. Actually, here's a cur curious question, Robert, because I remember my mom was a fiber artist. And she used to help uh, jury and do the, uh, the Pittsburgh Fiber Arts Guild's big biennial. And when fiber art sort of became a much more universal language and people started using staples and hardware cloth and all sorts of other materials that acted like fiber, the, the Fiber Arts Guild embraced it, which seems like this would have been a perfect piece for the Fiber Arts Guild. How did the glass people embrace your scotch tape? Because I think it would have, as they say in uh, the UK, been a bit of controversy <laughs> you know i i don't i i can't remember precisely um what the overall or what the the so-called glass people thought but i don't remember it being received poorly i think um every you know they knew we didn't have glass at lsu yet and um i had a colleague of mine from tyler a graduate student was now teaching at um, Tulane University in New Orleans. He was teaching glass at Tulane. You know, maybe he played a little role in um, people not uh, judging this harshly or something. It, uh, I thought it, it, it worked out pretty well. And so there were four cylinders that were just arranged in a line. And um, it was just, it was what you could do that looked like glass, but wasn't glass because you don't have glass. So is that a precursor of things to come? As you as you think about switching mediums, possibly. Well, um, so what I did is I worked that way for quite some time. Um, you know, I built a big piece of art park um, in 1980, and uh, which was a a big plywood constructed piece. It was 
24 feet long by about seven and a half feet wide, six and a half feet tall or so, and um, a big house-like form that uh, we dug local clay, applied that to the surface. Instead of using uh, glue, we were using Portland cement to stabilize it as sort of a little more adobe-like. And so, yeah, so for several years, um, I was working this way. And it, um, the work was start, you know, was receiving some attention. Um, in the early 80s, I was very fortunate to receive a National Endowment Fellowship, uh, which of course don't exist anymore. And that was all with this kind of work, National Endowment Fellowship in Sculpture. And um, that, uh, that allowed me to take uh, a summer at which I spent in Europe, uh, traveling through Italy and France and um, looking at all of the stuff that I studied in school but never um, got a chance to see in person. I'm sure, you know, affected my work uh, in many different kinds of ways. My work in wood has always been part, in part, but it was always a substructure you know, for these um, clay veneers that went on top of it. And it wasn't until being here at the University of South Carolina that I was making a, a series of these wooden clay pieces. And um, I thought I wanted to make finials for the tops of these because they were rather architecturally inspired and um, had architectural qualities to them. So I thought... Hmm, maybe I should maybe I should buy a lathe and learn how to use it. And we had a lathe at LSU in the shop, uh, but I think the only tools that were available for it were scrapers. And no one really seemed to know that much about it. And I turned uh, legs for a piece that I was working on there once, and but that was that was really about it. So. I went out to our local tool supplier here in Columbia and bought a lathe, brought it home, put it in the studio here, tried, started teaching myself to turn. So this was um, late spring semester, right? Just finishing up school. And I didn't teach summers. So I always kept summers um, as a time for uh, working in, in my studio. And so I spent all summer, I mean, every day, eight hours, 10 hours a day, trying to teach myself to turn, join the little local wood turning club and um, did that. So I got to the point by sometime in August uh, where I felt like I could turn a lot of different sorts of forms, but I didn't know what to turn. <laughs> you know, I, um, I didn't want to make um, bowls and I didn't want to become a bowl maker. Um, Actually, let me interrupt for a quick second here, yeah. Robert, because I, I, it sounds like the inspiration to turn came from an interest in architectural objects. Right. Because you wanted to learn how to turn finials. So where, where, what was the origins of that, that interest in architectural objects? Because obviously columns and forms and towers are a, are a form you like to work in a lot. Yes. Had you always been interested in architecture? What was the, what? Yes, I have been, Eric. I have been. It, it it started from way back, um, and in my early years at LSU, I suppose the great thing about being down in uh, that part of the country was we were close to Mexico. Uh, I took several trips down to Mexico to look at uh, Mayan architecture, uh, just to 
just to see it. And it was uh, back then you could climb all over them. You know, you can climb the pyramids and all that sort of stuff. And it, I mean, it was incredible. And so it was architecture had always been sort of that interest, but particularly um, architecture before architects. It was um, those were the kinds of things, these sort of tight enclosed spaces that I was really interested in. And I don't know if you've seen some of these really, some of the really early pieces, the clay and wood, the ones that were studded in like uh, matches or in nails or all that kind of stuff. Um, those were all about sort of those tight and close spaces, you know, no doors, no windows, just this interior hidden space. Yes, it, architecture at that point was a big, big influence for me. It sounds like you're talking about architecture when it, architecture was really a, a true, truly a cultural phenomenon. People were expressing their culture and their objects. Um, yeah, so I mean, those kinds of uh, those kinds of forms were um, playing a uh, a big role in what I was making and what I was uh, doing then. Um, and that's where you know that big piece of art park came in. Yeah, I think there was there were you know there were exhibitions going around on at that time around the country, uh, you know, exploring the house as art image and you know all that kind of thing. But it it had captivated captivated my interest uh, from early on. You mentioned seeing a lot of this stuff like in school or while you were teaching, but then actually going to be able to travel, say to Italy and other places to see that to see it in person, what items or what areas of the world besides Mexico, because I know you talked about Mexico, um, that you actually saw in person struck you as much as Mexico did? Well, in terms of the architecture at that particular time, I mean, Mexico was one of the biggest influences, I think. The trips to Italy and Europe um, were a little bit different. I mean, it was more of a historical look for me, and um, certainly the medieval towns and so so forth that we went through was um, was very interesting. But it wasn't um, it wasn't so much the artwork, but it wasn't the thing that was driving what I thought I was making. And this again ties back into your interest in the lathe. So let's let's pick that up again. So at the end of the summer. I didn't know what I wanted to make. <laughs> and I know I didn't want to make bowls. I didn't want to make pepper mills or, you know, all the kinds of things that... Um, that was what wood turning was at the time. And I will say if there's a thread that you've talked about so far is you aren't all that interested in functional objects. Is that a, is that a correct statement or is that, is that a false statement? I think that's a correct statement, Eric. And so, but yes, but not so much functional objects. I mean, I would make occasional things that um, sort of remarked about functional objects, but yes, not functional objects. I mean, I knew uh, early on I never wanted to be a potter, you know, a uh, particularly a functional potter. Production potter, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of work. So, but at the end of the summer, I said, God, I mean, I think I just wasted, you know, three months uh, doing this because now I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And it was so funny. Uh, we have this, used to be a screen porch on the back of the house. And uh, we had a couple of old uh, New England lobster buoys 
uh, sitting out there that uh, my wife and I collected by the time we drove through uh, New England. I just happened to see those, and it was like, that's what I can do with the lathe. And, I, you know, it wasn't going to be hollow forms, and it, I just started making these solid buoy-like structures that I started. Actually, could, could, could you describe a, a lobster buoy? Because I have no idea what a lobster buoy looks like. These are probably very different from what they use today, but they are all wooden. And there is a kind of like a, at least the one I have, is a conical shape uh, about 20 inches or so in length. And it's got a, um, a stick, basically, stuck in the bottom of the center of this round conical form that hangs down. And I guess they, that stick uses, is like a, anchor or something, or maybe that's where they tie off onto. And the other part, the conical shape, floats in the water so they can find the traps, right? So that that started me, uh, that led me to uh, what I've called the Earth Buoy series that um, I, I made, um, led me into that work, and then it has just continued from that point on. So I'm curious... What about the buoy uh, resonated with you? What's the because it's an interesting found object, or there is there something about the buoy form, yeah, and or into our lots that resonated with you that said, "I want to do a series of pieces." Is there some sort of narrative? Is there something you hooked into about the buoy form? Right. So years ago, when I was at LSU, I uh, would you know, take walks along the levee of the Mississippi. I mean, we were very close to the Mississippi River. I would walk uh, on the levee, top of the levee and then down the Badger. And uh, you would see buoys constantly uh, used for navigation on the river. So I built a clay and wood piece uh, that I called buoy. I had this big, um, I found a big uh, tugboat chain that um, had washed up and it hung in the middle of this form, and um, and it, the piece was taller than I am. And so, but that was the only thing that I made. And when I saw this lobster buoy, and I started thinking about the idea of an of earth buoys, um, I felt it as almost sort of a continuant continuation of the work that I had started down in Baton Rouge. So the lathe becomes a new tool in your arsenal. Yes. As you as you continue to teach ceramics at now you're at the University of South Carolina. Right. So at the University of South Carolina, I came in as a chair of the department of the School of Art oh. here. And And that's um, that's in Columbia, South Carolina, right? In Columbia, South Carolina. I had been chair uh previously at uh, Auburn University for a couple of years. Um so I left yeah, so I left LSU in um 1995, uh, after 13 years of teaching there. So you moved to USC as primarily an administrator. You're yes. no longer teaching at that point? I was teaching, but one, one class a semester. Right. So your freedom in the studio at that point is probably limited because... Yeah, it was certainly more limited. And when we moved here, I didn't have a workspace. Soon after we moved in here, we started construction on the studio that I now use. So, um, it, you know, a year later or so, I had the space to work. 
Right, but I imagine a full-time administrator of an arts program is a pretty busy job, and you don't get summers off. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, Eventually, I got to the point where I could take Fridays off, uh, usually, and maybe not all of them, but at least I had sort of a little longer weekend and uh, could spend uh, some time making things. I mean, for my work um, now, and even then, it's not so much about speed. I mean, it takes me weeks to make some things. But, and sometimes things will sit, you know, will be on the, on the lathe for several days, you know, before it comes off or it goes back on, comes off, goes back on, comes off. And... So you're an administrator, you're still spending studio time, and then you go back to teaching full time? Right. So after five years, I decided I was going to step down from the administrative position. And um, so I did that and uh, just went, resumed back into the faculty and uh, continued until uh, I decided I wanted to uh, retire. And that was fairly recently or? That was seven years ago going on. It'll be eight years uh, this coming fall. Right. And at that point, you just want to focus in on your studio practice turning. Yeah. And that's and that's what I do now. Let's talk about the lathe and your journey into wood turning. So once I once I had this uh, thought about um, making these earth buoys, uh, that really has captivated my interest uh, since then and um, still does to, you know, to uh, today. And, you know, it's, you've, you've seen, I'm sure, some of these more recent works, I say more recent, over the last 10 years or so of, um, pieces that are studded with pencils and all that sort of thing. And that really, let's see. So I went to the ITE in, uh, 2009. And, and actually just, uh, so we don't like to play too much inside baseball. Say what ITE is. I-T-E is. Yeah, so it's the International Turning Exchange, actually the Wingate International Turning Exchange, which was, um, at the time I was there uh, in Philadelphia, was um, uh, sponsored uh, by the Wood Turning Center, which was run by Albert Lakoff on Vine Street in uh, Philadelphia, uh, which has since, he then since moved it, uh, in, it became the center for art and wood and is now the museum for art and wood. But before that, um, my mom, uh, got ill and, uh, started suffering from dementia. And I, I started thinking about, I mean, you know, where do all of these thoughts and memories go? I mean, here's a woman who, uh, I could order. <laughs> always rely on to uh, fill in bits and stuff from uh, years before. And, you know, all of a sudden, it's like she couldn't remember. And um, so it it started, just gave me thinking about um, memory and what happens to it. And it seems like it was something that could be erased, but yet maybe recalled. And so I started thinking about what could be uh, some kind of metaphor for memory. I don't know exactly the moment that I thought about this, but I started thinking that maybe graphite could become this, could be a metaphor for memory. Uh, And what I mean by that, I mean, here's a material that you can make a mark with, you can 
smudge. So it becomes difficult to see. You can erase it. And I thought, huh, maybe this could really be something. So I just started turning up forms and drilling them on the lathe and inserting pencils. You know, I would cut pencils into maybe um, three-quarter of an inch lengths, glue them into these holes that I drilled. And then I started finding, you know, all kinds of things that would happen when I sanded them. Um, the sandpaper would drag the graphite around the form. And so this became a big concentration for me, particularly during the International Turning Exchange. And so we were there in Philadelphia. Uh, we spent eight, eight weeks. And this became this, for me, this sort of this foundational thing that uh, I really started, develop, uh, started developing start looking into uh, turning things like uh, not only, you know, if you're going to turn pencils, uh, why not turn an eraser? Uh, and so I started gluing erasers together and uh, into forms. And you'll see on, on my website, there are pieces that are from this time. And so um, the pencil still is captivating me. An interesting aspect of the pencil pieces is that on a lot of the pieces, the pencils are turned very sharp, as in incredibly sharp. To me, it's an interesting metaphor because, you know, I, I like sharpening my pencils with, with my pocket knife or utility knife. But the sharpness of a pencil is one of the most transitory things because it stakes, stays sharp for one line, one mark. <laughs> That's right. And then it's, and then it's blunted. Is, is there a statement? Or is there a thought behind <laughs> sharpening your pencils exquisitely? Well, I think it became part of, you know, I, I sort of imagined, you know, writers and, um, I mean, artists would sharpen their pencils, you know, at the beginning of a drawing, right? And, but when I started putting them into vessels so that the sharpened tips were pointing inside, not only it also sort of complicated the visual image, I think. And it started having sort of this semi-threatening kind of thing, sort of like these teeth or something pointing into the inside, you know, but they were also fragile. And so they could be broken, but yet they're sharp. And so it, it has sort of these dual sort of um, visual thoughts, I thought. And um, so that's why I was always sharpening them. I hadn't really thought personally about sharpening them with a knife. I'd have to think about that. Uh, but it, it, it could hold some interesting uh, possibilities, I would think. So, so moving along, Robert, um, I'm just thinking of other prevalent forms. And the, the brush form also seems to show up a lot. And it's almost like the shaving brush form. Not the sweeping brush, but these these tusks of bristles. Yeah, and th those are more recent. I mean, those are, um, you know, certainly within the last year, year and a half. Those um, really just came out. Of, I made a few brushes. I kept for myself and gave away as a couple of gifts for people. I, I just sort of liked the look and the feel of them. And so I started making uh, feet for vessels out of them as well as uh, some of the forms that you're referring to with the brush tufts sticking out uh, from the sides of them. Yeah, I haven't used them recently. Uh, they're not in the most recent forms. The most recently I've been uh, turning cork 
so, but, and cork in combination with wood, uh, gluing cork onto wood and thinking about it as kind of uh, a natural edge, as it were. But I like the texture of it. Um, and you know, a couple of the cork vessels have got um, push pins. You know, I've made what I call a push pin pot with these push pins inserted into the sides of them, as well as making my own push pins out of pencils and um, cutting them up, cutting the eraser ends and the and the sharpened ends off and drilling out the lead and fitting it with a push pin pin so that uh, they could be like almost like a bulletin board, as it were. Right. Well, the push pin, the, those classic metal push pins, or the plastic, I assume, too, but the classic metal push pins are actually a wonderful architectural element. Yeah, they are, aren't they? They're... They're totally expressive of the human form because they are exactly what they look like. And and I say this to differentiate the pushpin from the thumbtack. The thumbtack is a different form. The pushpin is actually a wonderful turned form, um, very elegant. So I, I guess that leads me as we, we start to wrap this up here. What is your most recent work about? What What are you... You're, so you're working on these cork and wood forms with pushpins, and, and what else are you working on? So I have been just gluing, epoxing groups of pencils together and then turning these on the lathe. So, you know, I'll have one pencil that's centered in the center of this group of pencils and turning them on the lathe so that you end up with a kind of a single point and all of these pencils coming down into one. And so kind of like this idea of focusing or I this one piece I call convergence. So, you know, bring thoughts together or as sort of this metaphor into these, uh, these pencils uh, grouped together. And so some of these have, um, I have some old recycled, um, either they're like uh, gym locker room uh, bench tops you know, seat tops that are all laminated maple. And so I've made sort of these um, eight-sided forms uh, come at, you know, just tongue, cut them so on the table saw so they bird mouth into one another and then turn those on the way. So part of them is eight-sided, part of them is round. And so there are groups of pencils that have been glued together and sharpened that way on the multifaceted side and then it goes up into the round section with um, pencils streaked across the surface and then into a cork, almost like a vessel top that is pierced by sharpened pencils up at the top. And, and the base of this thing is also cork. So are you getting, are you getting ready for any exhibitions? Is this work going to be shown anywhere in the future? Um, it's going to be shown for sure at a Momentum Gallery in Asheville. I'm one of the uh, gallery artists of Momentum, and I don't have a, a plan at this time for, um, you know, a curated exhibition. But, um, but you know, one thing that I would like to talk about, if you don't mind, is um, I, I remember uh, in several of the podcasts, in the Why Make podcast, there's been a lot of discussion about art and craft, right, and the difference between art and craft. Essentially, the unanswerable question. Well, I I think, for me, the best definition that I've heard is that art 
is imagination with or without skill, right? So it could, maybe you don't have a lot of skill, but maybe you don't need a lot of skill, and or it could be made by somebody else. But craft is skill with or without imagination. And then that leads into, um, you know, you, we, you've had this discussion about studio craft and studio furniture and what all that is about. And I think that studio craft is where that, where that imagination and a vision come together with skill and craftsmanship, right? And that's, and that's what sort of separates, you know, when we think about art, you know, I think we, we don't often think about um, the sun, Sunday painters and amateur of the hobbyist. I mean, we think about artists, you know, who are working somewhere. But when we think about craft, it could be, you know, anything from a trinket to mass-produced items to um, really, really finely made and beautiful pieces, right? And so when studio craft is at its finest, I think that that's where, um, you know, a vision meets uh, imagination and um, it's combined with skill and craftsmanship. But it's not a new term. And I have my old a Potter's Handbook from undergraduate school uh, by Bernard Leach, the English potter. And in here, Bernard talks about, and let me just read this. It is also plain that during the last 25 years, and this was published in 1940, by the way, uh, the last 25 years, a far-reaching change in aesthetic judgment has come about, not only in England, but literally all over the civilized world. A new type of craftsman called individual, studio, or creative has emerged, and a new idea of pottery is being worked out by him as a result of an immensely broadened outlook. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, if you think about it like that, studio craft kind of starts making sense, you know, and it is... Um, you know, probably a little bit different from what a general overview of craft may be. It's a more refined look, a more honed, more like what artists do, maybe. And it's, you know, it kind of comes down to that, you know, probably the best of craft, like the best of art, can be intriguing. It can be um, compelling, challenging, and maybe even inspiring, and but also beautiful. Right. And when it when those things happen, um, then we have the best of craft, I think. Right. And and I love the word craft and I hate the word craft because to me, craft is just an element of art. In my explanation of craft, craft is the technique one uses to apply to the idea. That's right. And that's what, that's, that's what I mean by imagination and vision coming together with skill and craftsmanship. Absolutely. And unfortunately, academia has chosen to define craft by medium. That clay is craft, glass is craft, textile is craft, and wood is craft. But art without technique 
is... It's still art, but technique is the language of art. And craft is the language of technique. And it's hard to tease them all apart. And, you know, it was interesting because I just spent the last two days at Penland. And I was talking with Mia Hall, the director of Penland. And we, were, we talked a fair bit about the future of non-academic institutions like Penland and the future of craft education. And, and what did she say? It's hard to boil down. Academia does no service in many ways to art education because it is just one element of an education. Whereas institutions like Penland allow people to immerse in their art as opposed to academia where you take a class, but you still have to take English. And I won't say that a liberal arts education is necessarily a bad thing, but immersing yourself in art like you can in a traditional, in a non-traditional traditional crafts program like Penland or Aramont or, um, you know, Anderson Ranch or Haystack. It's a very different perspective. And you can take painting classes at Haystack. You can take painting classes at Penland. It's an interesting thing, but I think academia, by lasering in on certain aspects of anything, whether we're talking art history, art or history or English, does some disservice to the, the overall perception. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it's, but I mean, it depends upon how um, programs get set up and who's teaching at those programs. I think who's teaching is a big, big, big part of it because I have always felt, I mean, the students that I've dealt with, that um, their job in school is to make their work. I mean, that's the real job there. Yes, you have to, you have to take other classes, but you have, a longer time to do all of this, you know, uh, over an undergraduate career, you know, at least four years, right? And if someone can continually work along that time, hopefully they can make um, good progress as well. The reason I ask is what what she uh, what her answer to that question was is because a lot of programs um, are closing down, you know, like uh, U Arts in Philadelphia just eliminated their entire craft program. So I, um, I have a good friend of mine, um, Robert Milnes, who uh, lives in Asheville now. And Robert, we met uh, when he was director of the School of Art at LSU. He says, uh, he thinks, he sees a lot of programs who are thinking about getting rid of uh, these kinds of uh, craft areas because uh, students are interested in uh, just sort of an immersive kind of thing for, say, six weeks or eight weeks, go to a few um, uh, places like Penland or Haystack or wherever, and then um, start working in your studio as opposed to going through in a traditional educational career. But I don't know. I'm sure there are advantages and disadvantages on both sides of the coin. It's it's crazy to see how people are like nowadays. Everything is just fast tracked. It's like oh, I could you know watch four YouTube videos and uh, turn bowls. I went to an eighteen month program and I thought that was not enough time to learn. And people are just like just doing things so much quicker nowadays. 
And now with now with AI, I saw this really interesting thing about like design a chair out of rose petals in 15 seconds with an AI program. And and this was an article in the Guardian and it's like that 15 seconds could have been an idea years a lifetime of thought for a maker and you just pulled it out from under this maker by doing that on an ai program and it's just like the speed of all this stuff is the speed that people want and that they've become accustomed to i think is a lot of what's taking away from you know making these craft programs and these intense long programs meaningless to a lot of younger people nowadays. But, you know, we're still seeing people who want to learn how to work with their hands. Which is amazing. Thank you, Asman Golan, and other makers like that that are working with their hands and promoting that kind of thing and promoting slow furniture, slow making, if you will. I mean, we all take time to make to make the stuff that we do, the three of us in our studios. And that's, oh, it's, it's there's not a, as much of that as there used to be, for sure. Right, and and in academia, also the the bottom line is is enrollment and mm. is the program mm-hmm. making money. Yeah, and the unfortunate thing about academic craft programs is is that in the end, it's the bottom line. I mean, it has nothing to do with the wants or needs of society. No, not at all. <laughs> academia has become almost an entirely in an economic driven thing, mm-hmm. especially big state institutions where the state legislatures largely control, unfortunately, the curriculum. And they say, hey, you know, if you want to teach classic painting, great. We can always find 50 students for this. It's historically a part of arts programs. But, you know, we're not going to find that $200,000 for the ceramics program. And, of course, the, the other thing, you know, you, you both pointed out that, Learning a craft is a lifelong proposition. Yeah, it's not just a two-month thing. It's not a two-month, it's not a six-year thing. And the beauty of academia, I have always thought, is is that it's a four-year concentration in learning more technique than you'll probably learn in your own studio in 10 to 12 years. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Eric. And I mean, my personal experience was, you know, after undergraduate school, I not only wanted more, I needed more, you know, and more input and more experience with other people uh, who were, you know, in my graduate class and all of that sort of thing. And it's um, it's not something that I don't think I'm not sure uh, we as people are are going to get that just through AI. I mean, the reason I sent you no, that thing for, uh, that Bard, you know, when I asked Bard why why make. It was because, uh, I mean, what, what, what I got back, I thought, was encyclopedic. Oh, see, I saw it, and I had not a clue. I didn't know what Bard was. Wait a second. We had to think about that and base that on, I'm basing it all on that experience when you just punch a question in, and it collects the internet for you. It's like, oh, my God, that's so not fair. But, but do you learn it? I mean, do you learn it in a sense that you can use it? You, I can learn from it, but it's not. Yeah. But it's not the same. It's, it's. It's not just a fact. I mean. No. I mean, you can tell me why you make the furniture that you make. Yeah. But it doesn't make, it doesn't give me an insight into 
how you think about it, how um, it feels in your hands, how it, I mean, why, why did you make this piece, Rob? Why? Well, I mean, the, the, the thing, the thing that is at the heart of these programs that happens at the speed of light is a process that you need to be able to replicate, which is ideation through problem solving. And it's interesting that both arts and science, which use the same process, ideation and problem solving, is a skill that is rapidly disappearing from society. You can't create art. You can't create new ideas. You can't create technology. You can't create new knowledge without, one, making a supposition about reality, and two, using your brain to problem solve, to find a methodology for realizing it, period. I mean, a, a, a week of sitting in front of a computer versus 20 years of sweat and dust in the shop. There's a massive difference. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not just the, the sweat and the dust. It's, um, it's about what you make. I mean, what it looks like and how does it make people feel? And it's about the shared human experience somehow. And because you just gave like the perfect place to end this, Robert, I'd like to thank you for being on Why Make. It is about the human element. That's why we make and why make. Why make. Keep making. <laughs>You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.